0: I used to live in New York City. Everything there was dark and dirty. Outside my window was a steeple. With a clock that always. Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. In this episode, I will be beginning my look at uh, We Can Build You. We Can Build You was published in 1972, but it was written quite a bit earlier. Now, early on in this r- podcast run, we talked a lot about how this chronological approach was a bit maybe ill-chosen, so at least maybe it would have been better for me to take the Publication take the writings and you know and the order of they were the order that they were written in um, And that was a, it, you know, especially with the stories early on, you know, they the order was all off Vulcan's hammer was written a lot was one of I think his first novel he wrote but published, you know a decade into his career So there was a lot of works that reflected his the ideas at different times um, But once you get to the 60s, you know, it's he wrote a lot of books, but there was, you know pretty much the order that they were published in was the order that they were written in, at least from 1962 on. Uh, this is an exception to that. And this novel actually you know, should have been perhaps looked at back when we looked at The Man on the High Castle. Um, now, the book We Can Build You, I'm going to start to look at it. We're going to look at it over probably four episodes. The first thing to say about this is You want to read it sort of as a prequel. If you're reading it in this order, right? You want to read it as a prequel for Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Um, But you got to be aware that this was all written down long before Dick wrote Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Um, It does seem like a prequel. You have um, the Rosen, it can almost look like the origin of the Rosen Corporation. You see the beginning of human construction of androids. You see the beginning of discussions about uh, exploration. Uh, to other star systems. Some of the problems, except for the war, World War Terminus doesn't take place in this novel, but you get the hint of, of crises that are going to emerge that are going to lead to that. You see the origin of the mood organ. Now, uh, We Can Build You is set in 1982. This was written in 1962, so he was looking like 20 years into the future, and it very much feels like a cont- novel that's contemporary to the mid 20th century. The when it was published, it was predicting the future only 10 years away. So uh, really, it's it's a contemporary novel. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that this is essentially a mainstream novel. And it, it, it has more in common with the mainstream novels that Dick was writing in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, yeah, it has science fiction elements. And, and there's really two or three science fiction elements here. One is like the mood organ, the android and you know some talk of space exploration there's a slightly different social system we have here especially with uh, the state really having the power to regulate mental illness and taking in a lot of people's awards with the state the universality of mental illness is the major social context of this novel so read it how you want read it as a prequel to do andrew's dream of electric sheep it's, it's a lot of fun to do it that way read it as you know one of his mainstream novels almost you know it's Really what the plot of this novel is, is about a man and narrator, it's written in the first person, which I think none of his science fiction novels, or some of the stories were, but none of his novels, so that I can remember were written in the first person. Eye in the Sky, maybe, uh, was that first person, but mostly they, they weren't written in first person. Uh, some of his mainstream novels were, though, uh, like Confessions of the Crap Artist, which we'll look at shortly. The What's the story about? It's really about a, a man who, who runs a business with a friend. That business uh, is going through a transition. Part of that transition, mean, during that transition, he, he gets close to the daughter of his, his business partner, who is severely mentally ill. She's basically a schizoid, and she's manipulative and brutal and cruel, but very attractive, very captivating. It's the typical young, dark-haired woman that, that Dick's always falling for or, you know, writing about in his stories, but she's a total psycho, right? Now, if we remember, well, let me finish, and then what about the main plot here? So to innovate their company, they invent androids, and they have a scheme to get rich quick with androids. It kind of goes wrong, but really what the novel's about is our narrator realizing he's mentally ill and committing himself into an institution. That's, that's really what happens. And so it's kind of about a man falling in love with the daughter of his business partner and then realizing his, his insanity. Um, this could have been written in a mainstream novel, you just change a few things right have them sell refrigerators instead of uh, androids have them you know instead of going to like these state clinics uh just have them go to a regular old asylum and and you'd have a story that that would be pretty much indistinguishable from the from what we have here so yeah don't think of this novel too much as a science fiction novel but if you want play with it as a prequel to do Androids Be more Electric Sheep? It's kind of fun to do it that way. It's hard not to think of that. Um, you know, Dick, it seemed when he wrote that book, pulled out some concepts. The thing, though, I do want to emphasize here is thematically it's very different. This novel is about androids who seem to, seem to have the capacity for empathy and, and kindness, really. He doesn't even talk in terms of empathy that much, but really kindness, being good people. And human beings who are incapable of that. Now, do androids do like your sheep is the opposite, right? In that story, as I talked about in the five episodes where I looked at that story, the androids are incapable of empathy. That's their defining feature. And humans have it, right? And, and even, like, the most brutal human is capable of it. That's something that human beings have, have that androids don't. <clears throat> so it doesn't work in the same universe for that very important reason. Um, if... If there maybe was a time early androids were capable of empathy or maybe the androids you see in this novel are just faking it and people are still coming to terms with with differentiating between the perception of kindness and reality of kindness. I mean, that's philosophy is still in the backdrop of it. But really, it, it's we're, we're contrasting Pris's and the name Pris shows up in both works too. Pris's uh, brutality and, and ruthlessness. Indifference to other people's emotions, manipulativeness, la- her lack of really understanding emotion, basic human emotions, is contrasted with um, with androids who seem to be good guys. Um, now, that, that I mean, that's what I want to say to get us started to think about this novel. Um, Okay, so um, let's let's start let's start taking a closer look. Um, anyway, but first, I think this is a good novel. It's fun to read. I, I think it, it, it's it's funny. It's it's kind of touching at times. It's it's thoughtful. There's a lot of kind of philosophical reflections going on. It's it's there's not really much action going on. It's um, just a lot of, of everyday things. Like right? you're taking a you know characters are taking a car ride. And, you know, he realizes he sort of has the hots for his coworker's daughter and they have mundane conversations about her mental health treatment, um, you know, and, and, and those kinds of games, right? And she runs away at one point and then, you know, they're trying to move on their, with their life with the one character losing his daughter, the other character losing, you know, someone he thought he, he, he loved. You know, it's just really these kinds of everyday things. And, and again, the, the science fiction elements of the story are... Are really not that necessary for this for the story to work. Now, who do we have for characters? Well, we have um, the the narrator's named Lewis Rosen, right? So obviously, the the Rosen Corporation of of Duendere Electric Sheep, the same name. But always remember that this was written first. Um, now, I don't know if he revised it. Maybe he revised it to to fit in that universe more. He he may. Have, I don't know enough about the construction of these, these novels. If someone knows, let me, you know, please, please post it. Um, his partner is called Maury Rock and, and they, they're the ones who kind of first developed this, these androids. Uh, they have a kind of a designer of robots, Bob Bundy, and then we have Maury's daughter, Pris. There's also Lewis's brother, Chester who also is kind with the business and the other major character in the novel is is a man named Sam K. Barrows who's a billionaire who ends up kind of being a bit of a competitor and he's the one who steals Pris away from this, this small company. Um, and then we have the androids who we'll, we'll, we'll meet shortly in this or the next episode. At least we'll, I think we'll meet one of the androids in this episode uh, that that are fully fleshed out characters. Um Unlike the ones that do Android Dream Electric Sheep. I mean, I guess they have their ide- identities to a degree. They have their subjectivity, but they're not the most well-developed. These, these Androids are fairly well-developed, and you, you feel you can kind of know them. And and what Dick does with these is, 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 a, is certainly a lot of fun. So anyways, um, as the novel opens in Chapter 1, it's we're just learning about this business, which in the early 1970s, they began selling pianos, spinet pianos. And electrical organs, that's what they sold. And instead of just, you know, going through retail, they, they had sort of a scam almost to how to market this. And that is they put ads in newspapers, and they put these newspapers throughout the world, or throughout the America at least, in local newspapers, basically saying they they have, you know, they, they found this or they, they inherited a, a piano and they want to sell it. So instead of selling things directly through, through retail, they're just selling them basically on Craigslist, it's not the 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 equivalent of Craig, Craigslist classified ads. Um, in fact, they're the manufacturers of these, and they're distributing them this way. So um, it's all kind of under the under the table that way. <clears throat> so they do. Um, they they are they have different names like for their company. One is um, Multitext Acoustical Systems of America, MASA, That's one name they go by. They also sometimes go by the Frauenzimmer Piano mm-hmm. Company. That's uh, actually where Pris gets her name from. Her name, she goes by Pris Um And the, there'll be different names for this corporation, but they're a little bit shady, to, to say the least. They're, they're um, not the most traditional corporation. And so they'll put these ads in, people will write them responses, and then they'll... To deal to sale, someone will deliver it, and, and there'll be a, a transaction of sorts. So that is the way they, they've marketed it. And it's a small business, obviously. It's just these two guys and an engineer and and whatever. Like Rosen's dad is, is actually the one with more money because he owns actually the the company that can manufacture these these organs, the electronic organs, and, and spinet pianos. But we're told pretty early on that this is sort of a declining business. This this business isn't really going anywhere, mostly because people seem to be not not really buying spinets and not buying electric corners. I actually had to look up what a spinet is. It's it's a it's a style of of, of piano. They can be harpsichords or pianos, um, in the spinet form. I think it has something to do with the way they're they're constructed or the way the music is is produced within them. Um, so yeah, you have the a Piano Company, which um. which essentially is how they rebrand themselves from the original name, which was the Massa Acoustics, the Multiplex Acoustical Systems of America, which they rebrand as Franz Zimmer pianos. And the question is, do we switch entirely to electric organs? That's that's one debate they have. Do we switch to mood organs? So we see the development of the mood organ beginning to be discussed. And the mood organs in this novel are actually, apparently, musical devices that affect your emotional state by producing music that fits what you need, so it's not the kind of well-developed mood organs we see in do androids, where you just set it to what you want, and some kind of drugs are given to you to create that mood within you. These are it's kind of a more musical type of thing, so it's actually a, a music-producing device. But the the problem here is there's just this fear that music's becoming obsolete. People aren't going to be playing um, music anymore. Um, now I'd be interested in, in looking at you know the sales of electric pianos. Um, I actually have an electric piano, not here in China, but it's, a, it's in Taiwan. But I have this electric piano, you know, and they were, you know, it wasn't much cheaper than an acoustic, but you know, I moved a lot. So getting the the digital, I guess they're called digital pianos, not an electric keyboard, but a digital piano, you know, and it's worked out well for us. It sounds, you know, for my for my ears as good as a regular piano. I tried learning without too much success. Um, but that's that's their business model and then they move into the develop we we hear about the development of simulacrum the technology to make these robots these sophisticated robots known as simulacrum are, are there now there seems to be a big jump in technology because these and these androids these simulacrum are essentially indistinguishable from humans from outside perspective um they're really good. So there's not like you don't see the primitive robots being constructed first. They sort of leapfrog to the, the believable ones. And this serves Dick's need. He he needs this this jump because he needs the simulacrum to to look human for this plot to work. Now, one really important theme in this story and as we're talked about this is introduced in the first chapter dick brings it up is that a lot of characters a lot of people are are driven to mental illness so there's something with the social order the society in america at the time that's just driving increasingly the number of people to mental illness so much so that the state actually creates this whole network of of clinics you know when people go there they're put under this charge of the state so it's like an extension of the welfare state is you know, these mental health clinics and for instance bob bundy who is their their engineer is a is a and, and we met those back in, in *Clans of the Moon*. Mm. So Dick was thinking about that all the way back in '62 when he wrote this book. So mental illness is everywhere. Pris, when that Alva opens, is essentially living in a um, in a in a government facility. So Morrie approaches them and says, "We need to get out of this piano business because it's going nowhere." And he wants his help to convert to this new new product. And in Chapter 1, he just says, I got a new idea. Let's talk about it in the future. And in Chapter 2, what that plan is, is, is introduced to, to us. So we're told in the beginning of Chapter 2 that there's a general obsession among Americans over nostalgia for the Civil War. There's like this, this fascination with the Civil War. And I don't know if that was really true in the 60s and, and, and 70s. When this was written, um, you know, Dick is interested in World War II a lot. Um, he, he does talk about the Civil War occasionally, but never as much as he does in this, this novel. But he imagines this world that ha- that having a, an overall obsession with the Civil War. In fact, there's these massive reenactments that, that take place. So Maury's plan is to sell um, simulacrums that will act out, refight the Civil War and to fulfill people's um, desires for this. It's even suggested in, the, in this part of the story that there's, uh, the government almost needs these as a way to avoid real war. It's like fake wars uh, have replaced, to some degree, real wars. So he talks about the Civil War Centennial, which was some festival that included people dressing up in Civil War uniforms and fighting out battles, and it, and it wasn't that successful. So the idea is let's make robots that, that know how to handle the guns that, that think they're in the Civil War, and, and fight it out, and they could make a, big, a bunch of money selling big government contracts to, to essentially sell Civil War soldiers to the government. So then we are introduced to the prototype, the prototype of this, of this um, I guess, line of androids. That, that Maury Rock is working on. And the prototype is, is based on Edwin Stanton, who was Lincoln's Secretary of War during the, the Civil War. So he starts with a politician. He doesn't start with a, a basic soldier. He actually starts with a pretty high-end, sophisticated robot. <clears throat> so that's, uh, that's what we're introduced to. So he takes the narrator, he takes uh, Louis Rosen to the Rosen plant, and they meet Edward Stanton. And Edward Stanton, you know, is a fully conscious simulacrum. He has this subjectivity. He actually thinks he's the actual Edwin, Edwin Stanton, even though he doesn't, uh, can't really prove it. And he has to deal with the fact that he shouldn't be in this time period and all that. And that, you know, he seems to be made, constructed. He's still trying to justify it to himself. But from his perspective, he is, he is Stanton. So they meet Louis's father, and he talks about this whole simulacrum business. And his main concern is, is the nobility of man and the relationship between man and nature and his concerns about where simulacrum will fit into, into this. Quote, and he's talking to his son, in this one, he, the narrator. He says, remember, Louis, that man is a fragile reed, the most feeble thing in nature. But God damn it, my son, a thinking reed. The entire universe doesn't have to arm itself against him. A drop of water can kill him. But if the entire universe will crush under him, you know what? You know what I say? Man would still be more noble. You know why, Mein Kind? Because he knows when he dies. And I'll tell you something else. He's got an advantage over the goddamn universe because it doesn't know a thing of what's going on. And all of our dignity consists in just that. I mean, man's little and can't fill time and space, but he sure can make use of the brain God gave him. That's what you call this thing here. This is no joke. This is a man. Say, so I have to tell you a joke, and then he goes. He goes into it. But he, based on this definition that his father gives Louis, he, he thinks this Stanton creation that was a product of his factory and, and his engineers is essentially a man, um, and he qualifies as as a human being. Now, this this is. I think this is before. Dick having this definition of man as, as having empathy. He has, a, he has a very different definition here, at least uh, Rosen's father does. Now, Rosen's father is, is a bit of a philosopher. He, he's actually described as having been a Spinoza scholar. And I'm not a big expert on Spinoza, but of course Spinoza is most well known for having this kind of pantheistic idea that we're all part of, of the universe, we're all part of, of God, and God is the entire universe. Um, so the, the pantheistic idea. Is, is what Spinoza is most known for, and he's mentioned several times in, in the story. So Mori has the most ambitious plan with this, these robots, and he says, quote, This Edward M. Stanton electronic simulacrum. It's as good as if Stanton had been alive here tonight discussing topics with us. What a sales idea that is for educational purposes like in schools, but that's nothing. I had that in mind at first, but here's the authentic deal. Listen, we proposed to President Mendoza in our nation's capital that we abolish war and substitute it with a 10-year space-depart centennial of the U.S. Civil War. And what we do, the Rosen factory supply all the participants simulacrum. That's the plural. It's the Latin word of everybody. Lincoln, Stanton, Jeff Davis, Robert E. Lee, Longstreet, and around 3 million simple ones as soldiers we keep in stock at all all times. And we'll have the battles fought with the participants really killed. These made-to-order simulacrum blown to bits instead of just a grade B movie type business like a bunch of college kids doing Shakespeare. Do you get my point? Do you see the scope of it? End quote. Now, what it boils down to is a get rich scheme for this, this company, but there's also a, a kind of an interesting idea here in that war is not for any real purpose. War, War is a catharsis for society. It's something people need every 10 years to kind of work something out of the system. And I could see Dick sort of believing that. You had World War One and the Korean War and the Vietnam War that was just starting up when, when this was being written. So kind of this every generation having its own war. And he says, let's just do- get away with that. And let's just relive the best war, the one everyone's interested in, the Civil War, right? Uh, I'd be interested. You know, I think the Civil War still kind of captivates people's audiences. You know, when you go to Barnes & Noble and you go to the history section, I'm a historian by training, even though I'm, I'm kind of drifting a little bit from my original profession, at least in, in, in where my, my reading and, and interests are right now. But you go to Barnes & Noble, you go to the history section, it's, it's biography and it's war. And, and I think, you know, more here is onto something, that that's really what people are interested in about the past. They're interested in these great men and women, you know. But again, most of these biographies are Barnes & Noble War of Men. But they're, they're interested in biography. So why not do Stanton? Why not make Lincoln? Why not make Robert E. Lee and others? And then there's this interest in, in war, this military history. It's a huge part of what's being sold for history at popular bookstores, which is a very small part of what's actually published in the historical profession. If you look at what com- you know the American Historical Association Journal, uh, Journal of American History, you look at all the reviews, right? A lot of them may be connected to war in some way, but they're not military histories. That's a very small field within the profession, but it commands so much of the actual reading of history, it seems, at least if you look at um, what's, what's popular. Um, so anyways, that's, uh, that's Chapter 2. Now, in Chapter 3, we, we get to meet Pris. All right, so they're still working out this transition to this new business plan and still trying to convince um, Brozen's father, who seems to give some humanity to these simulacrums. You know of, of, to do this because uh, basically it's means they're gonna kill a lot of these simulacrum if their plan plan works sell a lot to government just to be destroyed um <clears throat> but now they get word that priss is coming back from her her stint in, a, in one of these government clinics ryan she's got a mental illness so most of chapter three really is about priss and her and her, her illness But she's not the only one It's very, very common Tens of thousands of people Have been put into the, these clinics Now we, we get hints and hints About what's wrong with the economy And the world that's driving people To men, uh, this mental illness Part of it seems to be a Kind of a post-scarcity situation In which there's the labor market's glutted There's really not work available For, for people There's a lot of kind of human kipple. Maybe there's a thematic connection To Dwayne Andres' three more electric sheep If you want one um, in fact, there's suggestions here that Earth is already planning to settle off-world colonies on the moon and other places. And, and this is actually going to become a market for the simulacrum, too. You know, companions for, for, for other planets. Dick talked about that a lot in, in other works. Uh, Martian Times had pad it. Um, where else? Uh, obviously, do Androids had it as well. So the fact that there's really no work available for people on Earth is maybe leading people to, to mental illness. But I think one thing we need to talk again about is, is the like how psychiatry and how mental illness was being looked at by more radical voices in, in the 60s. And I think these are voices that were influencing Philip Dick. You have, of course, Ir- Irving Goffman, who, who basically looks at the, the asylum as a... As a totalitarian institution, you had uh, people questioning what led Germany, uh, you know, the civilized nation to authoritarianism. And then the question, you know, the idea was that there's maybe something wrong with people's psychology in the modern world. And more other critics talked about how the fact that mental illness doesn't really exist. It's just a construct of of a sick society. Some people argue that really it's it's society itself that's sick and that leads to people being mentally ill. So there was a lot of radical arguments that said that there really isn't such a thing as mental illness, or at least it needs to be understood in different ways as more of a social ill. Right? And I really much believe I really believe Dick thought this way and he was on board with these criticisms. He was a consumer, of course, of psychiatry, but I, I think he did hold with these criticisms of, of, of mental, the mental health industry. So Pris, uh, we, we learn, was diagnosed with, they go into a lot of detail about her diagnosis, a kind of um, schizophrenia. But she also has characteristics of a schizoid personality. And um, anyways, here's a description of Pris, because she's going to be such an important character in the story. Um, quote, I saw a little hard, heart-shaped face with a widow's crown, black hair, and due to her odd makeup, eyes outlined in black, a Harlequin effect, and almost an almost purple lipstick. The whole color scheme made her appear unreal and doll-like, lost somewhere behind, somewhere back behind the mask which she had created out of her face, and the skinniness of her body put the cap on the effect. She looked to me like a dance of death creation annihilated, animated in some weird way, probably not through the usual simulation of solid and liquid foods. Perhaps she chewed only walnut shells. But anyway, from one standpoint, she looked good, although unusual to say the least. For my money, however, she looked less normal than Stanton. Right? And that's the theme here, that is that Stanton ends up being more human than, than Pris, to a certain degree. So, um, yeah, but she, she comes off almost looking like a, a robot. Right? That's, that's how I, I read her description. Um, so it sounds like also that Maury narrowly avoided having her permanently institutionalized for hebephrenic schizophrenia and paranoia and all other kinds of, of problems. Um, but she got out, and but she's still sick. That's the thing. So she's she's kind of on uh, outpatient care at this point in her life. Um, so that's most of this. Uh, we learned a few other things. We learned one one thing. We learned is that Pris who's young, she's eighteen years old, is obsessed with this billionaire, famous billionaire Sam K. Barrows. And she like collects, you know, magazines with him and she follows the news about him and she's always talking about him. As young you know, girls will will apt to do from time to time, you know? Young boys for that matter. You know, get obsessed with celebrities or famous people and 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 you know kind of create some personal connection with them we're reminded just how young she is despite her 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 apparent maturity and seriousness and and brilliance she's she's still a bit of a child um she is very smart though and and we're told that she she worked with bob bundy the engineer to make this but she claims to be the real designer of it um she she thinks that bundy is just like an idiot savant like he's a Mechanical expert, but he's not doesn't have any inspiration or, or real ability to create something. You know, she can't design something. So that was Priss's, Priss's job, and Maury is just the organizer, not really though the brains behind it. Well, although Pris is um, diagnosed here as a schizophrenic, Louis Rose and goes a little bit farther and 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 focuses on her hostility and her kind of indifference to others. And, and seems to diagnose her with schizoid personality types as well, meaning someone who's not really capable of, of human emotions. Quote, if she really disliked me, but could she do that? Did such a word mean anything in connection to her? Maybe it would be better, I thought, as I locked my bedroom door. It would mean something more human, more comprehensible to be disliked by her, but to be brushed off purposefully just so she could not be interfered with, so she could go on and finish her work as if I was a mere variety of restraint, a possible interference and nothing more. She must see only the most meager outer part of the people, I decided. Must be aware of them only in, in terms only of their coercive or non-coercive effects on her. Thinking that, I lay one ear pressed against the pillow, my arm over with the other Other dullies, the snap-snapping noise, the infinite procession of cuttings off that I passed off into infinity. Now, the snap-snapping is... is um, uh there's a scene where he's trying to sleep and she's in the next room making a mosaic and snapping tiles to make a mosaic and he it's late at night and he says can keep it down i'm trying to sleep and she's like no i'm not going to i'm doing this i want to finish my job so if you've ever met someone who like sets a schedule for themselves that they're going to accomplish something and even if it means they're going to be up all night, you know, Pris is that kind of personality, even if it's keeping everyone else up. She's just indifferent to their desire only. The only thing that matters for her is her, her plan. So that's his thoughts as he tries to to get to sleep here. But anyways, the whole of chapter three, and there's a lot of, of little details and stuff going on here. But it, it's all about uh, mental illness, particularly um, uh, Pris's, but also the general condition of human beings. Of, of, of kind of moving towards a, a general state of, of insanity, or at least a general state of needing to be, you know, institutionalized or, or consumers of mental health care. OK, chapter four. The main thing that happens in chapter four is their, their plan to, to sell these to the government kind of uh, is, is off track a little bit, mostly because they're approached by a representative of this, of this billionaire, Mr. Barrows who works makes a lot of his money in real estate and real estate development. And, and we're given some of the context of, of kind of overpopulation or a housing crunch that's also contributing to the desire of people to go off the planet to the moon or where, wherever. But Mr. Barrow is just thinking of investing in these new simulacrum that are being developed. And so he has an interest in meeting the Stanton simulacrum, seeing their potential for, for his business. So actually, it was Priss who informed Barrows about the Stanton simulacrum, and, and he wrote a letter, and, and Barrows wrote the letter back to her. So Maury calls um, Mr. Barrows, and they have a conversation, and and he he kind of doesn't really buy the commercial potentials of a Stanton simulacrum after talking on the on the phone with with Maury. But that that bridge is not entirely broken. It's the the idea of who to sell this technology to, who will be the consumers. Of the simulacrum is is in the backdrop. Obviously, this is a you know a technology that they're trying to sell, right? They they're trying it's a business. Um, so um, chapter four is kind of a, a break, and in, in a way, why again, why I say this is more like a mainstream novel is it's just like the the foibles of a of a struggling small company trying to find a place for them in, in a very competitive market with with a new technology. I'm almost reminded of the you know the characters in. The man, for the, high castle, the, man, the man in the high castle, you know, trying to sell their jewelry or whatever. And it, it, it seems such a small, insignificant thing, but there's a larger context. Um, of course, the fact that we're dealing with Simulacrum makes it a little bit more lofty than the jewelry in, in that novel. But it, it's still, it's kind of the day-to-day business things. I mean, there's a lot of inks built in this novel over, like, legal issues of, of patents and stuff like that. So anyways, uh, four is really the the exposure of the simulacrum technology to to, to to Barrows. All right, chapter five. That'll be the last one I'll look at in, in this episode. Um, but uh, Rosen learns that Maury is devel- working with Pris to develop another simulacrum, and this one's going to be Abraham Lincoln. At this point, the simulacrum for Lincoln is just like, still it's like, circuits and, and still kind of at the, the brain stage still at the foundational stage but they're they've they're kind of laying the groundwork for the the abe lincoln simulacrum so that's going to be the two main simulacrums we we have as characters in the novel it's going to be stanton and then it's going to be um abe lincoln and so there's a lot of fun to be had with the, these two characters partially as as you know the, the narrators doesn't know that much about Stanton, but he looks it up and finds out that Stanton and Lincoln were actually at each other's throats a little bit and, and not always getting along. And I think this was well known by Civil War historians, how, how Lincoln did craft a cabinet of people who were not always in agreement with him on all, all things. You know, the team of rivals thesis of, who was that? Uh, Goodwin? Uh, I forget her full name. She was always on TV, right? Um, now... At this point in the story, our narrator is already kind of obsessed with Pris and, and interested in her. So he goes to see Priss's doctor, Dr. Horowitzki. And, and it's a really weird conversation. They He asks her about Pris and what he knows, and, and he tells her a little bit about it. Um, but, you know, he asks questions, and we start to get the beginning of almost like a patient-doctor relationship. And That's going to be a major theme later in the story when... Lewis Rosen eventually is institutionalized himself. Um, you know, at this point it's not, he doesn't realize that he is, is mentally ill yet. He he thinks he's he's normal. In fact, this one way this novel can be looked at is the memoirs of someone coming to realize he's he's mentally ill. Um, they talk a little bit about the mood organ, which is um, as it's developed in this this story, it's very different from the one we see in do Android Stream of Electric Sheep you know, quote, uh, hubrenzine stimulates the anterior portion of the spectral region of the brain. Stimulation in that area will bring around greater alertness plus cheerfulness and the belief that events will work out all right on their own. It compares to the setting on the Hammersfield mood organ, but the effect of the drug is much more intense as you, the amplitude of effect shot produced by the mood organ is severely limited by law. Um, but, But it can actually, it has like a musical dimension to it here. Um, so Rosen actually asked, "Do you have any chance of drug whose settings in terms of the mood organ correspond to the portions of the choral movement of the Beethoven's Ninth?" So the goal here is defined almost musically. That's what I was trying to suggest before that it's not fully developed mood organ of that we see in androids. Here, the mood organ is is more. How can I? Is there a possible to create a cocktail of drugs or neural stimulation that can make me feel how I feel when? I listened to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or something, and, and it seems that's possible. Now, he plays a little bit of a game with this doctor claiming to be another simulacrum of, of another Rosen's simulacrum or another one of Pris's simulacrums, and he doesn't really buy him. But um, this this man walking into the psychiatrist's office scene in Chapter 5 is where I'm going to leave off right now in, in the novel. And in the next episode, I'm going to look at Chapters 6 through through nine. So, f- four more chapters which will just get us to about the halfway point in, in the story. Um, that section is going to focus really on the relationship between Louis, Louis Rosen and and Priss, and their growing, af- at least his growing affection for her. If she's capable of affection, is something we're going to have to consider. So, again, like I said, it's a fun novel. It's really much, it's really like almost a mainstream story about a, a small time businessman, you know, dealing with stuff as the business is transitioning to something else and then dealing with this for his friend's daughter who has come out of the mental institution as a grown-up you know she's 18 right and and that complicates things um so and then the small business dealing with the big business is something dick's done a lot in his work too and and it, it comes to play here as well so um, if you haven't read We Can Build You, I, I mean, I don't know. I think there's other novels that, if, you, if you're if you just coming to Philip K. Dick, that you want to read first. But if you're a Philip Dick fan and you haven't got to this one yet, check it out. Uh, I'll have a lot more to say about it in the upcoming episodes. But for now, let me know what you think of We Can Build You, especially the early parts of it. Um, uh, do you think it's mostly a mainstream novel? Do you, have you read his other mainstream novels? Uh, I haven't read most of them. So, uh, you know, do, does this have the same feel? It doesn't feel like a science fiction novel, to be honest. It, it feels very, very different. Uh, it's much more intimate. It's really about one person's point of view. Most of his novels are from many people's point of view. So it just feels very different. And that's why I, I think it's, it must be like his other mainstream novels. Uh, of course, Confessions of a Crop Artist is also from the first person point of view. So anyways, uh, let me know what you think. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. In the next episode, we'll continue our look at We Can Build You. Thanks, as always, for, for listening. To feel these changes